Tonight is the fourth segment in our Beginner's Kabbalah course, and we're going to be talking about the Kabbalah of balance. Now, when you hear the word balance, B-A-L-A-N-C-E, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear balance? Yes, please. Hmm? Struggle. Struggle. Okay. Anyone else? If you're, uh, unmute yourself. Moderate. Write in the comment box. Moderation. Moderation. Okay. Balance, moderation, balance, struggle. Fantastic. Anything else? Control. Self-control. Self-control. Fantastic. So we have balance, we have moderation, we have self-control, we have struggle. I think about, words? About, about, evens, about an even keel. An even keel, even keel, okay. Mindfulness. Mindfulness, fantastic. Okay. Oh, that's not good. To turn that off, okay. So... If someone says that they're trying to achieve balance in their life, what does that tell you? What do you think if someone is saying, I am trying to achieve balance in my life? They're trying to get their life under control, at least. Okay, trying to get your life under control. Any other ideas? Uh, to me, they must feel that they're out of balance, that something, they don't feel comfortable, something's not right. Something's not right. So they're, they're feeling out of balance, which means that they need to bring themselves into balance. Yeah. Probably, um, maybe too many extremes. Mm-hmm. So they're going from one extreme to another? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Order to chaos or chaos to order, harmony, Mm. Right? Compensation, compensates, you know, what's happening yeah. in their lives. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Would, would you say that you're trying to live a balanced life? If someone were to ask you, are you living a balanced life? Would you say, I'm trying to live a balanced life? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, because my life is not balanced at the moment, so I'm working at that. So, so you would admit that your life is not balanced at the moment and you're working towards living a balanced life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I hear a lot. I, I see a lot of hear, heads being nodding. Yeah. We, we hear it a lot. We hear it a lot. You know, you need to get work, work life balance. You need to, you know, so balance, it's, it's a common concept right now mm-hmm. where, you know, one is sacrificed to the excess of the other. So, so like Marisa is saying, we see this so much, this work-life balance, and, and, and there's this is a word that's kind of uh, flying around, I would say, the self-help world, this idea of balance and, and bringing ourselves into balance. You, know, you want to say that my life is happy, that my life is exciting, that my life is lovely. Kabbalah is actually quite concerned with the word balance because... Kabbalah wants us to live a balanced life. And and the word is going to come up very often in the writings. 
trying to find a middle ground, trying to find a, a, a balance. And balance implies that there's two sides. For example, last week we spoke about two souls, right? There's a, an animal primal soul and there is a godly soul. So, you know, somewhere in between the two, we would say there's two sides. They're both fighting over mastery of what we call the small city. They're fighting over mastery of the person. And so therefore, we would try to say that the ideal place for them to be is to try to find balance. Now, I'm going to start tonight with what I believe is the most important thing that you are going to learn about balance. And the rest, as they say, is commentary. The most important thing that you're going to learn tonight is that if you want to achieve balance in your life, you cannot try to achieve balance in your life. If you want to achieve it, you can't try to achieve it. If you want to achieve balance in your life, you cannot strive for balance. What is the secret? You must go to the opposite extreme. By going to the opposite extreme of where you are today, you will end up in the middle. You will end up finding and achieving balance. Now, can anyone here give me an example of something they're trying to fix or something they're trying to mend in their life? You can even write it in the, in the, in the comments or you can uh, unmute yourself. Give me a something. You know what? Maybe that's too much. Maybe that's asking for something too personal. I want you to think of something that is that you're trying to mend, something you're trying to fix in your life. Because if you go through tonight's class with the thought of something specific, then all of my generalizations that I'm going to make are going to become much more specific to you, to whatever you're thinking about. So take a moment and think about something you're trying to fix or mend in your life. It shouldn't be something that's just, you know, fluffy, like, oh, I want to be nicer. Yeah, everybody wants to be nicer. I want to be you know, happier. I want to find self-fulfillment. That's all wonderful. Save it for the self-help gurus. What we want to talk about tonight is something specific, something that you want to change in your life, a goal that you want to achieve, a specific goal. Do you have something? Okay, I got three nods, four nods, five nods, six nods. Seven, eight, nine. Okay, I see a lot. Yes. You want to say something? Yeah, Good. you know me. Uh, yeah. Confrontation, confrontation. I'm always Yes, yes I know, of course. We're going, to go, we're going to get into that a little bit. I thought about that from last week, so we're going to get a little bit into that tonight. Absolutely. So while you're thinking about this particular thing that you want to mend, this particular thing that you want to change in your life, I'm going to tell you a story. One of... Um, one of my favorite stories is a student, a young man, once came to the Rebbe. Every Sunday, the Rebbe would stand and give out dollars for hours. The Rebbe believed that when two people met, something should affect a third. So the Rebbe would give dollar bills to people, 
so that they would take that dollar and give it to charity. Now, most people kept the dollar because they felt that there was a blessing from on that dollar, and they would give a different dollar to charity. And with that, the Rebbe would give blessings. People would be able to ask the Rebbe questions, and you'd get you know, your 20, 30, 40, maybe, maybe two, two minutes at most with the Rebbe. So there's a young man that comes to the Rebbe one Sunday morning. He's in the line for dollars, and he steps forward. And he says in English, Rebbe, I'm not a good person. Now, you can see on his face, there's videos of all these dollar interactions. And sometimes when I want some inspiration in my life, I just will turn on the video. And, and some of them you can just watch. They're six, seven hours long. I mean, just one person after another is coming in front of, in front of the Rebbe. And, and each one is such a fascinating interaction. And so he, you can see on his face, he's waiting for the Rebbe to just give him these words that are going to set him on his way that are going to change his life forever, that are going to make him a good person. He turns to the Rebbe and he says, I'm not a good person. The Rebbe leans forward and he says, eh? Meaning like, like he didn't hear him. So he repeats it. He says, Rebbe, I'm not a good person. So the Rebbe looks at him and says, You're not a good person, so be good. That's it. So you're not good? What's stopping you? Be good. What what the Rebbe, in essence, was teaching him is that the answer to all your problems, the remedy to all your issues is doing the exact opposite of what you're doing today. You're not good today, so be good. Tell me what's stopping you from being good. Just be good. And and if you don't like what you're doing today, if you don't like the response that you have towards someone or something today, if you don't like what's going on in your life today, just do the opposite. If you're not good, be good. If you're sad, be happy. If you're in bed, curled up, depressed, then get out of bed and stretch. It's not complicated. It's not something that's even uniquely Kabbalistic. It's a very simple idea that if you're ever in a down place, if you're ever feeling bad, if you ever feel like the world is taking you over, like they have you confined to your home and you don't know what to do next. If you ever feel like that, then just do the opposite of what you're feeling. Thank God they let us go for walks. You can go for a walk if you're feeling too claustrophobic in your home. If it's too much, make it too little. It's your responsibility to take control of that feeling, to hone that feeling and change it immediately. Yes, please. So when you say don't try, you mean do. That's right. Thank you. When I say don't try, I mean just do it. It may have been the greatest marketing 
slogan of all time. Just do it. And it's like a little chauffeur. We'll be back after a quick break. Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? <laughs> Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's cute. <laughs> That's it. it it's, it's not complicated. Actually, I would say that it's, it's oversimplified because it's not complicated. Contrary to popular belief, life is not complicated. And if you think that your life is so complicated, and if you think that you're the only person that ever experienced what you're experiencing, you're not unique. You're not as special as you think you are. I'm sorry, if your mother told you your whole life that you were special, then she's probably right. You are special in your own way. But maybe you're not as special as you think you are. And maybe someone else is going through the same exact thing or has gone through what you're going through, and they have succeeded. And you can say there's someone else that succeeded. Someone else did what I'm doing. Someone else went through my experience, and they were successful. And me too. I will also be successful. So what do we say to the depressed person? We say simply, not so simple, simple to say, not so simple to do. We say to the depressed person, stop focusing on yourself. Focus on someone else instead. You are going within, you're focusing too much within. Too much on yourself. It's time for you to move outward. Focus on someone else. The opposite of depression is not happiness. That's a mistake. The opposite of depression is focusing less on yourself, more on others, giving to others. That's the opposite, which means if you take someone who's depressed and you say, I have a mission for you, go and do something for someone else, there's no way for them to stay sad in that moment. It may take a couple more times for them to get out of the depression. But in that moment, there's no way to stay sad when they're giving to someone else. The opposite of depression is not happiness. The opposite of depression is giving to others. So we know the illness. We want a remedy. We don't want to know the opposite emotion. We want to know the complementary emotion. We want a remedy to the illness. The illness is depression. The remedy is giving because you can't be depressed when you're giving to others. So what we're going to do is put ourselves in a particular situation that is going to remedy the illness. And you can take any example. You can take an example of relationships. We're not looking for the opposite. 
of who we are. We're looking for the complement of who we are. Now, obviously, to a certain extent, we're oversimplifying it, and depression is a very serious thing, and sometimes people have to get medication, and sometimes people need, you know, little push is not enough. They need something more. They need some intervention of some sort. So I'm not talking about a, a clinical depression, and obviously I'm not saying that this advice is in, <laughs> instead of, of, of getting proper advice. But the point is, is that sometimes it's not clinical, and we're in a little funk, and we just have to get out of that funk. And... The opposite of being in a downward, in a sad state, is being in a giving, being in an open state. Uh, Rabbi, I have a quick question here. Sure. Is, isn't the, the issue, the reason why, again, using depression as the example, people don't know how to get out of it is because they don't know what the complementary of it is. No, because... People the, find the, themselves the in situations and they don't know how to get out of it because... They don't know. So like one of the jobs, one of the jobs of a, of a, of a mentor in, 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 you know, the, the Torah says that you have to find yourself a rabbi or find yourself a mentor. One of the jobs of the mentor is to teach you what the complement of that other thing is to, to, to show you how to get out of that state. It's so easy to get, it's very comfortable to be down to be full of yourself, to just think about yourself so much. And it's just so bad. So it's hard to say to somebody who's down and out, snap out of it. Come on, snap out of it. It's, it's very hard to say it to that person because it's comfortable. It's cozy when you're curled up in your bed. It's cold outside of the bed. So there's also sometimes the person just doesn't have the ability to get up. They need someone to care about them. They need someone to, to stretch out their hands and give to them and pull them up and say, it's okay. I see so many people who, I mean, I just, I've been trying as much as I can for people who I have numbers for to call them and see if I haven't seen them on one of the classes over the past few weeks or if I haven't spoken to them or have, they haven't called me, trying to reach out and, and, and call them. And I can't believe how how happy and how overwhelmingly people happy pe people are because we're just lacking that social interaction. So for some people, this woman I, I called this morning, she's a Holocaust survivor. I'm the first person she spoke to in two weeks. Spoke to. Think about that kind of loneliness. So I'm not belittling that there, there, there's a real loneliness going on right now for a lot of people and, and, I, and I want I want to make sure that that that's important to to mention there's a real loneliness going on and, and we need to allow people and help people but that's our job now you're feeling down call somebody anybody you call is going to be so thankful that you called them just call someone just pick up the phone and call anyone right now. People are lacking that social interaction to so, so much that they're literally, you know, going through their social media or, or, or just, you know, trying to, to interact somehow with people or to live vicariously through other people's Facebook feeds. So whatever we do right now is going to be so exaggerated because we need it. And that's a great example of this balance. When we need something so much, we're gonna find it. I think 
you know, the classic example is, is, is uh, I've lived vicariously through uh, four pregnancies. And my wife, when I mean, she has a craving during pregnancy, I mean, it's, 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 there's no, there, I need it now. And it could be the craziest thing that you've ever heard of. I mean, talking about peeling lemons like they're oranges. But obviously, for whatever reason, she was deficient in that particular vitamin that the lemon could give her. And she was peeling lemons like oranges. And I've heard even crazier stuff than that. But if you're deficient, you have to listen. The same way a pregnant woman can listen to her body and you cannot negotiate on a craving that she has, our soul also speaks to us. And we can't negotiate. Our emotions also speak to us. And we can't negotiate on a craving that they have. We have to listen to them. Now, within reason. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's a fake craving and sometimes it's a real craving. I'm not talking about the pregnant woman. I'm talking about our emotions. So, I want to go a step further. There's a word that's so commonly used in our lexicon today. What's, what's the opposite of love? Indifference. Indifference. Any others? What's the opposite of love? You can even write it in the comments if you want. Fear. Hmm? Fear. Fear. Okay. Hate. 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 Yes. What else? Yeah. Indifference. Hate. What? Indifference. Indifference. Okay. I see jealousy. Despising. Okay, someone else said hate. So I think that in general, we see hate, indifference, jealousy, indifference, you know, all these, these are great words. For Kabbalah, the opposite of love, remember, we're not talking about the opposite. What are we talking about? The opposite on a complementary level. The opposite of love on a complementary level is. Fear. So many of us in our lives live based on fear. We create our narratives based on fear. The six o'clock news is really good at feeding into our fear-based narrative. I'm afraid of such and such. I can't go out of my house now at all. And if I do, I will put on <laughs> enough layers to make sure that nothing can get into and affect me. It's scary. It's a scary world out there. That scares me. That scares the living daylights out of me. I fear that it's not going to be good. When we talk about balance, the first step in balance is to find the two opposites, to find the two ends of the stick. That's how you create balance in your life. You have to first find the two opposites and not the opposite that you think like love and hate or love and indifference, which is an opposite in its own right. It's the complementary opposites, like love and fear. Now, until you came to the class tonight, you were thinking 
that the opposite of love is 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 hate or the opposite of love is indifference or the opposite of love is is jealousy now you're starting to think that the opposite of love is fear so do think about this do you fear more or do you love more in your day do you govern your emotions more based on love or do you govern your emotions more based on fear? The ultimate balance when we're, tra- when we're trying to achieve balance is 51 to 49 because you can never have 50-50. There's always going to be one that will be a little more dominant. So a balanced person will constantly be going back and forth, 51 to 49, 51 to 49. But in the emotions of love and fear, the balanced person would have 51% love and 49% fear. The moments you're afraid of anything, the moments that you're in fear, I'm not saying don't be afraid. I'm not saying that there aren't things to be afraid of. I come from Chicago. In Chicago, we always say there are places that white man don't walk. (laughs) I'm not saying that there aren't things to be afraid of. But it's about being conscious of, of the idea that they're just two opposites of an extreme. That's already enough. That if you have... A, a tightrope, if you have a pole and you have a, a, a tightrope that is on two ends on either side of two sticks, then you have to know that there's two opposites of an extreme and finding balance is somewhere in the middle. That's already enough. I mean, I would be satisfied with tonight's class if we just ended here. Now we can go home, right? We are home. <laughs> exactly. But the moment... Why would you say that? What? Why? I'm just saying that, obviously, I have a lot more to say, but I'm, okay. just, saying that, right. I'm just saying that because if you just learn that tonight, if you just learn this idea of complementary opposites, I would be happy if that's the only thing you take home from tonight. So the moment you look... And you say to yourself, emotions do not have an understanding. They don't have an intellect. They don't have a knowledge. You can see that they're two opposites of an extreme, emotions and intellect. One coming from the heart, the other one coming from the brain. You can see that they're two opposites of an extreme. So if you say that there are particular things that happened in your life. And you say, well, that's coming from within me. I'm afraid, I'm loving. I think about how many things that I approach from fear or how many things that I approach from love. Perfect example, marriage. I would hate to think that somebody would get married out of fear. I mean, it's true that some marriages don't work out and it could be that a particular particular person is infatuated with someone and it's not real, but I would hate 
to know that somebody got married out of fear. I would want to think that the emotion associated with marriage would be love. But marriage could happen out of fear. It could be fear that there's no one else out there. It could be fear of the unknown. It could be fear of dying alone. It could be fear of old age. There, there's so many things that could actually create fear in the relationship. So what we're concerned about right now is where is that emotion coming from? And the methodology could be the same. The actions could be the same. We're going to learn soon that in actions are garments, garments of the soul. They're not really ours. We'll talk about that in a second. But what's really us, for example, with these emotions, we can't separate ourselves from our emotions. They're really us. And so therefore, we need to understand that when we do something, or when we say something, or when we think something, where is it coming from? Is it coming from fear? Or is it coming from love? So, I'm going to go a step further. I know some of you have been asking for more concepts. I'm going to give you another concept here. Do you want to know why the opposite of fear is not hate? Sorry, the opposite of love is not hate and it's fear. In Kabbalah, there are two types of evil. The first type of evil is called, and I'll use the Hebrew term, and of course I'll translate it right afterwards, shalosh kalipot hatmeot which means the three evil shells, the three evil kalipot, which is evil that can never be repaired. There's an evil in the world that could never be repaired. It's not very common. And most evil can be repaired. We'll talk about that in a second. But there is an evil that cannot be repaired. It's irreparable. It must be destroyed. Must. And then majority of evil is called kalipat noga. Klipat Noga is evil that can be transformed, that can be repaired. So I'll use an extreme example. ISIS falls into the category of an evil that can never be repaired. But majority of evil can be transformed. And majority of things in this world can be used for good or for evil. Look at us right now using Zoom, using the internet for good. But there are some people who use the internet for evil. So we'd call the internet klipat noga. It can be transformed. It can be repaired. We can use it for good or for bad. So let's say somebody lied to you. Do you hate the liar or the lie? Do you hate the person who lied to you or do you hate the action? So his soul the person who lied to you, his or, or her soul, comes from the essence of God. We've spoken about this already. You can't hate someone who comes from the essence of God. You can't hate something so powerful, something so spiritual, but you can hate their actions. You can hate what they do. You can hate what they say, but you can't hate them because they have a purity, an essence. Unfortunately, they've made the wrong choice. But you can't hate them, just their actions. 
So once again, going back to love and fear as our example, because they're so prominent, they come up so much. Think about love and fear and which is the dominant factor in your life. Do you live your life based on fear or do you live your life based on love? We need a certain level of fear and we need a certain level of love, but which one is the governing? What is your go-to response? Is it a fear response or a love response? If you're someone who's more fear-based, well, what do we do? We follow the words of Maimonides and we go to the opposite extreme. So start working on being more love response. If you're one that's totally love response, you're just love, 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 then start working on being a little more fear response. And you'll end up in the middle. You'll end up finding your middle, your balance. Okay, here's a story. One of my favorites. I've probably told this one to you before, but I just like it so much. I'm going to say it again. There's a story about a rabbi who lived in the former Soviet Union. His name was Reb Mendel Fotofas. He passed away in 1994. And in the late 30s, when the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe was, was uh, forced to go to the United States, he was one of the five rabbis who took over leading Chabad in the former Soviet Union. And of course, religion was considered an anti-government. And as a result, these rabbis who the government knew very well were running these underground yeshivas and underground schools and underground shuls and underground uh, mikvahs, they got a, a special treating, let's just say. And this man, very short man, big bushy eyebrows. I remember meeting him. He was already well, you know, well into his 90s when I, when I met him. A fascinating human being, this short, stocky man. He had like this very nice uh, polished white beard. He spent 25 years in a forced labor camp in Siberia for one reason, because he taught Torah and it was illegal. So they sent him for 25 years to a forced labor camp just because he was a rabbi. They asked him, how did you survive? So many people didn't survive. You were sent there to your death. How did you survive the forced labor camp? How did you survive the harsh brutalities? So he said, there were two ways I survived. The first way I survived was through my prayer, through my faith. And he would recall that which he studied by heart. And he would recall that knowledge that he had acquired through the years and the second, he said, was he would always get to know his cellmates. The prisoners that were there with him in Siberia, he'd always get to know them. He'd get to know his bunkmates. And he would always ask his bunkmates for stories. He would listen to the stories and he would apply those stories to the Kabbalistic concepts that he held so dear. They would, he would use them as analogies, as metaphors for his teaching, for his learning. And that is how he survived. And he would actually teach his bunkmates, who um, can't imagine what a lot of them were there for, 
definitely not for spreading Torah and for being a rabbi. And he would teach these bunkmates how to better themselves and how to better their lives through their own stories. And he told so many of these stories over, over the years. He, there's a book that was written full of these stories. I would say this is probably one of the most famous of the stories that he told. He said that he was once a bunkmate with a circus performer, a tightrope walker. Now, this rabbi came from the shtetl. He never heard of a circus and he never heard of a tightrope walk. So they're sitting in their cell after a long day of very hard backbreaking labor. And this tightrope walker is trying to describe what it looks like to walk a tightrope. And he's explaining, I take the big rope and I tie it from one tree to the other and I go across the tree I, I go, I go, and I climb up, I climb up and, and there I walk across the rope. And this rabbi cannot fathom somebody walking across a rope suspended in midair. One day Stalin dies. And a couple of days later, they had something called May Day. And it's, I think it still exists in many countries. And the guards decided to make uh, that day, it was a celebratory day, to make that day a little lax. And they said, anyone who had a talent, uh, you know, you can do something, entertain us. So the tightrope walker asked if he can show everybody how he walks on the tightrope. And they said, okay. Now he was so excited because more than just being able to get back on the tightrope, for the first time in three or four years, he could finally show this rabbi, who was his bunkmate, for so long what it looks like to walk a tightrope. And so he goes down to the cell and says, Rabbi, Rabbi, you got to come out. You got to come see my show. And the rabbi was hesitant. He was busy, you know, lost in thought, in prayer. But the man had been speaking about it so much, he decided to come up and see the show. And so he climbs up on top of the tree. And in the beginning, it was very hard because he hadn't walked the tightrope in a while. And before long, he remembers everything and he's dancing and he's twirling and he's doing his regular tricks on the tightrope. When he finishes, he comes off right away. Where does he run to? To the rabbi, to Reb Mendel Futafas. Rabbi, rabbi, so what did you think of my act? Did you see it? Did you see what I just did? Yeah, the rabbi says. I saw it. It was good. It was very good. So, Rabbi, tell me, what do you think is the hardest part of the tightrope walk? So the rabbi thinks. He says, sorry. He says, what do you think? How do you, how do, you do it? How do I do it? What's the trick? So the rabbi closes his eyes and he thinks a second and he says, the trick is you never look down. You just look at the tree. You just look at the goalpost. He says, you're right. You're right. That's how you walk a tightrope. You just look at the goalpost and you never look down. But Rabbi, tell me, what do you think is the hardest part of walking the tightrope? So Mendel said he closed his eyes again and he thought about it and he pictured the whole scene in his mind. And he said, the hardest part of walking the tightrope is when you have to turn around. When you're at the end of one goalpost and you have to turn around and walk towards the other one. Because for a few moments, 
you can't see the other goalpost. So Tightrope Walker lights up. He says, you're right, Rabbi. So how do we do it? How do we do it for those moments when we can't look at the goalpost? What are we doing? So Mendel closes his eyes and he thinks for a moment. He says, I don't know. How do you do it? So a tightrope walker says to him, when we're turning, we just keep our eyes focused. And we know that in a few moments, the goalpost will come back into view. Remendel smiled and he said, such is the story of life. We're all walking a tightrope. We all dance the tightrope. We do acts on the tightrope. But the secret to life is to keep our eyes on the goalpost. Never take your eyes off the goalpost. Never take your eyes off the destination. But sometimes, sometimes it happens that you have to make a move. You have to take a risk. You have to make a move that, that maybe for a moment you won't see the goalpost. During those moments, Reb Mendel says, that's where you need to remember to have faith, to have hope, and to realize that your goalpost is not far away. Don't get sidetracked, because if you get sidetracked, you're going to fall to the ground. You need to remember that if you just make your move and turn the right way, your goalpost will be back in view. In our lives, trying to find balance means understanding defining, being real about who we are, finding the opposite extreme to the experience that we're having. And once you find that opposite extreme, you make that your goalpost. Once you find the complement, the complementary element of your life, you make that your goalpost. And naturally, you're going to find the middle. Naturally, you're going to find the balance. So like I started tonight, finding balance, the key, the secret to finding balance is not finding balance. The secret to finding balance is finding the opposite extreme. And when you strive for the opposite extreme of where you are today, that is when you're going to find the balance there. That's where you're going to find the balance. And if you can't figure out what that complement is, if you can't find out what the opposite extreme, what the two ends of your goalposts are, so if you're over here, if you can't find what the other goalpost is, then you have to search for it. You have to search for it like something you lost. Like you search for a mate. You search for a mate like something you lost to search for it. In a rush, in confusion, no one is able to serve their purpose on this earth 
in a rush. We've been given a gift right now, an incredible gift. I don't know if we're ever going to get this gift again. I'm not putting aside the tremendous loss and the suffering that's happening right now in the world. We, we pray for them. We'll dedicate our, our study to them. We'll dedicate our prayers to them. I'm not putting that aside. But we have been given a gift because so often, so much of our life is filled with Russian confusion. And right now, we have the ability to do the opposite of what we usually do. The complement, the opposite extreme of Russian confusion is slowing down completely. The world right now has forced us to slow down almost to a complete stop. There's no rush. There's no hustle and bustle right now. Actually, the best thing that we're supposed to be doing right now is stopping, doing nothing. We now have finally entered for a moment, I don't know how long this is going to be, but for a moment, we've entered the opposite extreme of everything we've been doing for the past number of years of our life. We don't have the societal rush and confusion. Maybe personally, we're putting it on ourselves. I can't control that, or you'll have to do some soul searching for that. But society is not putting on that. We're not able to find, to fulfill our purpose in this world in a rush, in a confusion. Human purpose is an exquisite balance of heaven and earth. The opposite extreme of heaven is earth. It requires feet firmly planted upon the ground and a clear head up in the air. It doesn't require us in a horizontal position. It, purpose wants us in a vertical position, the head high up in the air, but the feet firmly planted on the ground, which means head up in the air, feet on the ground, but eyes straight forward looking at the goalpost like a tightrope walker. In a rush, the world is in control of you. Now we've been given a gift to slow down and take control of our world. This is it. This is it right now. We've never had this gift before, at least not in my lifetime, and we may never have it again, thank God. It's so easy to get caught up in the hustle and bustle of, of what happens. The opposite of working hard is not going on vacation. The opposite of the hustle and bustle is not the vacation. A lot of people think, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to play hard. Vacation is not going to help you. It's actually just going to be counterproductive because then you're going to need a vacation from your vacation. You're going to get back from the vacation and you're still going to be tired. You just removed yourself from the emotion. Now, it's a good first step. We spoke about this before. The escafia, the removing yourself, that's a good first step. 
to remove yourself from something that's not working. If there's a hustle and bustle, remove yourself from the hustle and bustle. That's great. But then what are you going to do once you removed yourself? How is the transformation going to happen? If you decide you want to lose weight and you remove carbs from your diet, for example, okay, that's great. But you can't just remove carbs. What are you replacing it with? So if you're replacing it with taking control of your emotions, slowing down, focusing, creating goals, figuring out where you stand, finding your vibration, finding your senses within the framework of this world, not outside of this world or above it, then you've done something good. To use, again, the example of the acrobat and the tightrope walker, a great rabbi once said that if the man on the tightrope would think about the money he was earning with his act, instead of concentrating on the goalpost, he's going to make a mistake and crash to his death. And so he turned to his students and he said, and shouldn't we think about the service of God in the same way? Somebody once said, I don't believe in God, but boy, am I scared of him. If you, do you live? Do you live in fear of being the opposite of love? We end up making a lot of mistakes. We end up doing things that we don't even realize we're going to regret somewhere along the line because we made that choice. Because we had to make that choice. We didn't have a choice. It's not true. We have a choice. We always have a choice. Actually, that's the only thing that's truly us is our choice. Choice is all we have. Nothing else in our lives truly belongs to us besides our choice. And that's why we're, we're so concerned to study and, and to understand these ideas, to constantly, constantly dig deeper, to dig further into these ideas so we can make well-informed decisions, so we can make choices, not necessarily on what we need right now in this moment, but what we need in the future. God did not create this world because he needed to create this world. God created this world because God had what we call in Hasidic terms, in Kabbalistic terms, a taiva, a desire. What is the opposite of desire on the other end of the stick? The opposite extreme of desire? It's need. Think about that. The opposite of desire is need. So, Instead of living your life based on need, live your life based on desire. Now, there's different types of desire. There's positive desire and there's negative desire. So imagine living your life instead of based on need, living your life based on a positive desire. Instead of living your life passively, the opposite extreme is living your life actively. Desire is active, need is passive. Things 
are going to come up that you need. And there's no choice. You need certain things. It's a reality. You can't live without food. You need food. Here in Canada and Montreal, at some point, we need winter tires. Why? Because if the day comes that you have to put your winter tires on, you're going to get a ticket. So if you don't get winter tires, what happens? And you're driving your car and the police officer stops you. You say, well, I didn't get them. I didn't need to get them. You know, that's it. I didn't need it. He's going to look at you like you're crazy. But today, let's just say, I desire my winter tire so I don't slip. So my, so my car doesn't slip or, or, or skid. And so I don't get a ticket. But today, it's a desire. And if I don't deal with it, it's going to become a need. So many things that today are a desire, if we don't deal with them properly, they will eventually become needs. So we want to deal with things when they're desires, not when they're needs. And that's why you're going to see all the opposites are really three-dimensional circles. They're not actually opposite ends of an extreme. They're actually opposite ends of the circle, if you can look at that. They're like opposite ends of a three-dimensional circle. Speaking about tires, Rabbi, sure. if, you've, if you've ever had the um, malchance of having to drive without winter tires and snow hits, you will have a taiva for winter tires, exactly. but of the worst Thank kind. You. That's right. As Marisa is saying, if, you if, if snow hits, you're going to all of a sudden have this new found desire for your winter tires so you can get by. Now, we, we already spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. If... If it's for me, if it's a desire for something that I desire for myself, for the I, for the ego, it's bad. If it's something that I desire for someone else outside of me, if it's something above me, then it's good. We've already concluded well before we've had this conversation that we don't know why we eat or sleep. We don't know why we drink. We don't know why. I mean, we know that we have to, and if we don't, we're gonna die. But we don't know why. We don't know why we do that. We can analyze it beyond things that we don't know. But there's no way to truly understand the desire of eating. We know that if you don't eat, you're going to starve. But there's no way to even prove that scientifically, that we, why we need to eat, if you want to put eat into this context. Now, we can put chocolate into this context because you don't need chocolate. Okay, I know some of you are saying, yes, I do need chocolate. Oh, I'm happy for you. I'm proud of you. You and your tibus. But you don't need chocolate. You could cut to the point where your desire is so strong that it turns into a craving and then it becomes a need. But that is a self-imposed need. It's not a real need. Are you going to let the chocolate control your desires? 
Are you going to become controlled by a chocolate bar? I mean, I think much better of you. I think you're stronger than that. Kabbalah thinks of us as a piece of God. That means that our potential is infinite. And you're going to put yourself to the point where you're going to let a chocolate bar control infinite potential? What Kabbalah wants always is mind and heart. The mind must hone. The mind must dominate the heart. It has to hone the heart. 51 to 49. We touched on this last week. I'm just going to go a step further, which means the mind should hone the emotions, but it doesn't dampen the emotions. It hones it. It doesn't destroy the emotions. It just hones it. We need the emotions. Imagine me right now giving this class without my emotions. It's going to be very monotone, and you're probably going to be all sleeping. Our mind, to be able to explain these very difficult ideas, we need our emotions, our passion, but our mind needs to be in control. So when I'm passionate, when I'm excited about what I'm saying, it's much easier for you to appreciate it. You're not going to fall asleep. This is, for a moment, the mind controlling the heart, the mind honing the heart. So which means the mind is going to plan, the mind is going to, is going to create the planning behaviors instead of responding. A lot of people just respond to things. We spend our whole day just things coming at us and responding. It's like a survival mode. We have this our whole life. It's like one big mushmash. We're just constantly in survival mode. How am I going to get through the day? How am I just going to be able to, to, to do it? Okay, here's another day. Here goes. Is that how you want to live your life? Now's your opportunity. There's a little silver lining in this difficult time that we're in now. A little tiny silver lining. And that is, we have the ability to take a step back, to put our life in balance, to put our life back into focus, to not react, to not be impulsive, to take a step back and plan. How do we do that? What's the first step? Well, let's just talk about the first step of controlling or honing the emotions. In order to hone the emotions, in order for the mind to be in control, the mind needs to figure out a way to allow things to be calm, to be settled, because the mind likes calm, it likes sequential, it likes to have things in order. It likes to have things taken care of. The passion, the desire, that's all over the place. It's working on everything. The mind wants things calm, cool, collected. Remember, our animal soul, our primal soul, it's in the left ventricle of our heart, which means that it uses the blood. It has full control over ourselves. The divine soul is in our brain. 
So in order for the godly soul to hone the animal, the primal, it has to take control from the brain. Our brain, we have to be able to take a step back and not respond. Every time we're impulsive, every time we respond, impulse items are a billion, multi-billion dollar business. Every time we pick up an impulse item, we are allowing our emotions to take over our mind. Every time we take a step back and we think and we focus, even if it's just for a minute, even if it's just for a moment, every single time we do that, we allow our mind to control, to hone our emotions. So now, we need that animal within us. It's our nature. It's who we are. It's our emotions. It's our primal needs. We need to have it. But we also have an intellectual perception. And that intellect also has needs. And we need to be able to control those needs. Because if those needs get out of whack, well, then I don't have to tell you the results of that. Overeating, oversleeping, addiction. There are times in your life that you're going to be more emotional. And there are times in your life that you're going to be more intellectual. What you want to do is you want to start right now by being more intellectual than emotional. That's balance. Not saying don't be emotional ever. If you want to try to find balance, you need to be more, there needs to be more times that you're intellectual than you are emotional. That's when you're flowing with the rhythm of the music. You want to make sure that you're not going to flow into the other. So there are times that you want, that you want to, to, to be able to flow within the rhythm of the music. Now, let's say you're a very emotional person. Let's say you want to become a little more intellectual or you're very intellectual and you want to become a little more emotional. That's, a, that's balance, right? So you first need that knowledge. Am I more emotional or am I more intellectual? The mind and the heart, they make a good pair. The heart is an extremist. It's untamed. It's a single emotion will fill its entire space. And the mind finds balance and harmony even between two opposites. The mind is cold and aloof. The mind, for the mind's reality, it's its curiosity. But the heart lives in the world where things matter. There you go. Are you a very emotional person? Curiosity. Because curiosity is an emotion that's intellectual. Use, hone your emotions by using your curiosity. Never lose your curiosity. Some people say things like, 
Trust your gut. Anyone here trust their gut? Trusting your gut, is that good or bad? You see, you can trust a gut that has been well-tamed. If you have spent years taming your emotions, if you have spent years allowing your mind, your intellect to hone your emotions, then you're able to make good choices. And then your intuition will actually come out and you'll have a heightened awareness. Eventually, the more tame your emotions will become, the more your intuition will develop, the more you'll have a heightened intuition. So the mind and the thoughts, the mind is not thoughts. According to Kabbalah, thoughts are clothing. We call them the garments of the soul. There are three garments of the soul, thought, speech, and action. These are the ways that the soul expresses itself. The same way we have clothes. And depending on where you want to go, if you go to the gym, you put on gym clothes. If you go to the, to the shul, you put on shul clothes. I hope we can go back soon. If you go to wherever you go, you go to out for a dinner date. I hope that happens soon also. Then you put on dinner date clothes. If you stay home, you wear different clothes. So the same way you have physical clothes, your soul has clothes. And thought, speech, and action are the way that your soul expresses itself. The way that your soul uses the eyes to see, uses the ears to hear, uses the mouth to speak and the nose to spell. Our soul expresses itself through thought, through speech, and through action. These are not our own. They're not one with our essence. They are garments. The same way you can use your physical garments to look one way or to look another way, you can use your spiritual garments also. If they were the essence of who we are, they'd be one with us, which means you wouldn't be able to think one thing and say the opposite or say one thing and do the opposite or think one thing and do the opposite. You wouldn't be able to. That would be, <laughs> that would be psychosomatic. So the fact that they're not one with our essence, we're able to think one thing and do the opposite. Now, it all makes sense to me when it comes to uh, speech and action, right? I definitely, I do one thing, I say the opposite. You know, and definitely my actions, I can, I can believe that my actions are not part of me. I can believe that my, that my words aren't even part of me. They're, they're an expression of my soul. But my thought. How can you say that our thought is a garment of our soul? I mean, it's so much part of who we are. It's so much intrinsically part of us. We never stop thinking. Even when we're sleeping, we're thinking. We're dreaming thoughts. So how could Kabbalah, how could Hasidic philosophy be so bold as to say the thoughts are garments of our soul. That's all I have. That's all I have. No one knows about what I'm thinking. It's all I have, it's all that's mine. I mean, it's a big statement to say that thought is not mine. Yeah. Michael? Because the soul only comes to give and to learn. 
But thoughts, they can be greedy, they can be a huge gambit of things, whereas the soul only comes to give and learn. There you go. There's a, there's a great example there. I'll tell you a story. It may not be a story that you have heard before. In 1945, right after World War II, the prevalent thinking in psychology was a brain cell is a brain cell is a brain cell. But a brain cell can never be changed. Right? Remember they used to say, don't drink alcohol because it's going to kill brain cells? That a brain cell can never be changed. There was a problem going on in the early 50s and then later in the 60s in Israel. The problem was is that people were moving to Israel, Jews, the right of return, were coming to a newly formed state of Israel. And they were coming from third world countries. So yesterday they were hunting for their food and today they have to go to a grocery store. Now, if a brain cell is a brain cell is a brain cell, how are we going to be able to allow these people who yesterday were hunting to become part of a civilized society? It's, it's practically impossible. So you're talking about bringing people, it was most prominent in the 60s when the Jews, the Jewish community from Ethiopia was coming, right? They were in Ethiopia. I mean, they were literally in, in shacks and in shell. I mean, who knows what was going on over there? And now they're coming to, to Israel. They have to now be acclimated into a first world country, if you call it that. And so there was a professor and he researched the theories behind cognitive psychology. And he created a new study. You can look it up. It's called Cognitive Restructural Modifiability. And today, it's actually taught widely. And he basically proved in his research that brain cells could be restructured. He, he proved that you can change the formation of a molecular structure, which means that, for example, people that are on an extreme level of autism and Down syndrome, to a certain extent, to a certain extent, again, I'm using an extreme example here, their brain cells can be manipulated and modified. Now, what was fascinating about this is years after he figured this out, he actually had a grandson that was born with Down syndrome. And this particular grandson spent, he spent a tremendous amount of time doing research on him and with him. And this boy, now in his early 40s, is married with children, has a regular job and a regular life. And if you look at him walking down the street, you'd never know that he was born with Down syndrome. That grandfather was the one who did all of this work. And he passed away just a few short years ago, well over the age. I think he was 102 years old when he passed away. His name is Dr. Reuven Feuerstein. And I had the good fortune of studying his methodology and studying about this absolutely incredible person. Until I studied cognitive restructural modifiability, I never was able to truly understand the idea of thought being a garment of the soul. 
the thought not truly being ours. The thought is outside of us. And the power that we have to control our thoughts, I never could understand it. But once I started studying the, the, these ideas behind restructuring brain cells, of course thought. Thought is so powerful. Thought is all we have. We used to think that choice is all we have. It's thought that's all we have. We have the ability to control our thoughts. Wow. Think about it a second. We so easily give uh, the freedom to our thoughts. I can think whatever I want. No, we can't. Whatever we think we wear on our forehead. Kabbalah wants us to learn how to control our thoughts. We have a negative thought. Get rid of it. Don't just empty your thoughts. Don't just empty your mind. Replace it. Remove the thought and replace it with a different thought. So in the beginning, you can just have one thought. It could be your go-to thought. That's the thought that I replace all my bad thoughts with. And you just get used to it. And eventually, over time, you'll be able to train yourself to be able to get rid of bad thoughts and replace them with good thoughts. We have to get into the habit of replacing thoughts. We can't allow negative thoughts to take us over because those thoughts create our reality. If you have to, you can take a step back. You could snap your finger. You can move away. You can move your head. You can smack your head if that's what you need to do. Now, do I have to define a bad thought? Bad thoughts are anything that are not a good thought, which means if it's unclean, if it's a primal thought, it's a bad thought and it's not a good thought. In our lives, We're constantly between one place and another, trying to navigate ourselves in a confused world, trying to make sense of all this, the good and the bad and the ugly, trying to find what is our purpose, trying to find what is our place, trying to find what's meaningful, what's not meaningful, how to make sense of everything that's going on in this world, how to, how to make sense of our lives. It's hard. It's not easy. But we're going through a very difficult stage. And what I want to do tonight is I want to end off with a, an age-old Kabbalistic idea. The truth is that it's really the wrong time to be talking about it because if you go according to a Jewish calendar, we should be talking about it in four months or five months from now, closer to Rosh Hashanah. But I just find this is such an amazing opportunity that we're in right now, where the world has slowed down. It's allowing us to do it. I think that, I hope that come before Rosh Hashanah, we're not going to have the amount of time that we have now. So I am suggesting that we start right now. And it's the idea of cheshbon hanefesh. It means it's like this. Every single night before we go to sleep, we are supposed to take an accounting of our day. 
But part of taking that accounting, we can take an account of our emotions, that we do good, do make good choices, bad choices. We can take all of those kinds of accounting, which is very, very important. But we also are supposed to look at our goals. Now, we're supposed to have daily goals. We're supposed to have weekly goals, monthly goals, and yearly goals. Before Rosh Hashanah, 12 days before Rosh Hashanah, we're supposed to go through each of the 12 months and do an accounting. Now, I'm going to go the opposite. If we have a yearly goal, it's supposed to be that we have a yearly goal. And then our monthly goal is 12 steps to complete our yearly goal. And our weekly goal is four steps to complete that monthly goal. And our daily goal is seven steps to complete that weekly goal. So our daily goal feeds into the weekly goal, that feeds into the monthly goal, that feeds into the yearly goal. You can even go further than this. Kabbalah doesn't say this, but I'm going to say this. You can have a 10-year plan or a five-year plan. And you can do the same thing. The annual, the, 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 the annual goal is five steps to complete the five-year goal. And the monthly goal is 12 steps to complete the annual goal that's five steps to complete the five-year goal. And your weekly goal is four steps to complete the monthly goal that's 12 steps to complete the annual goal that's five steps to, keep the, to complete the five-year goal. You literally just start off from the top and you work your way down. Start off from the macro and you work your way down from the micro. So when you go to sleep at night, you review and you say, today, did I do my one of seven to complete my weekly that will complete my monthly that will complete my annual, that will complete my five-year goal. That's what you do. And then what you do is you make tomorrow's plan for how you're going to complete that goal tomorrow. And once a month, traditionally on Rosh Chodesh, on the first of the month, you just review. Well, first of all, once a week, you, um, traditionally Motzei Shabbat, right after Saturday night, you review your weekly goal. On Rosh Chodesh, on the first of the month, you review your monthly goal. And then, closer to Rosh Hashanah, you review your annual goal. I believe that if you were to say that to someone on a regular day, that would be overwhelming. It's overwhelming even right now to talk about it like this. But right now, we have this opportunity. An opportunity like we've never had before. And God willing, we'll never have again. So I am encouraging you to... Leave this course, these four weeks that we've been together, with cheshbon hanefesh. And every single night, before you go to sleep, before you say the Shema, which you give over your faith, you give over your soul to God, because the Talmud says that sleep is one sixtieth death. So we need to have the faith in order to fall asleep with the faith to give our soul over to a higher power. Before we do that, Instead of going to sleep with the TV on or going to sleep however else we go to sleep, sit down and do an accounting of your day and think about what you've done today, what you've accomplished today. You can congratulate yourself. You can show gratitude as well. Show gratitude for what you've done today. Show gratitude to the people that you've encountered today. And then go through your list and say, did I accomplish what I was supposed to? If you didn't, it's okay also. 
put it on tomorrow's list. And you start that way. If it's too much to start with an annual goal, start with a weekly goal and divide it into seven parts. Just start one week, do one week at a time for the next four weeks, just to get used to this idea of making a daily goal and a weekly goal. And then slowly you'll work your way up. The key, the key to all this is to constantly be able to review your goals. So every night when you go to bed, when you're walking the tightrope of life, you can ask yourself, where is my goalpost? I have a goal. I know where my goalpost is. The goalpost can be 10 years from now. It could be five years from now. It could be one year from now, one month from now, one week from now. It could be tomorrow. But it's a goal. I know where I'm going. I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to fall down. I'm not going to get sad. I'm not going to get depressed because I have somewhere to be. A real place to be, not a place that society forced me to be, but a real place to be because it's my personal goal. And I look at them every night and I analyze them every single night. And I look at my 10-year goals and my five-year goals. I look at them and I could see tomorrow what I'm going to do tomorrow. So I've got to be up bright and early because I've got to complete my goal. And I could see how what I'm going to do tomorrow is going to eventually end up in my annual plan or my five-year or my 10-year plan. And that, my friends, is what Kabbalah's view on balance is. I thank you very much for joining me on this journey of four weeks. I hope that uh, it's been enlightening. I thank you for taking the time to listen. I know there's a lot of distractions right now in our lives. And the fact that we can be together you're en enlightening me because I'm able to see, for those of you I can see on the screens that I, I, I could see you and I, I have my social interaction that I'm craving so much. So just the fact that we can be together and even though we're not physically together, we are physically together because we're able to be here together sharing this space and this time. And Hashem should bless us, each and every one of us, that we should be able to get through this and we should come out of this stronger, happier, healthier, more balanced with the ability and the freedom and the peace to be able to know what's good and bad, what's right and wrong. And Hashem should bless this entire world that never again should we know from the difficulties that we're going through. And we shouldn't have to go through illness and suffering in order to find purpose and balance that we should be able to find purpose and balance without illness and suffering. And we should be able to live in a world that is truly a world filled with peace, filled with prosperity, and only goodness and kindness. L'chaim, everyone. L'chaim. Amen, Rabbi. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it, all you have to do is go to 
theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness, and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode. 